it takes years uh, to build a new uh, vaccine. But the scientific idea of these new platforms uh, could radically change that uh, so that a lot of the steps are sitting there ready. The, the, the factory piece, understanding the regulatory piece, and you just have to plug in some information, do some quick safety profiles, and then you can get into manufacturing quite rapidly. We need to be willing to take substantial financial risks in terms of scaling up the manufacturing process at the same time that we are performing the early clinical development. So in, instead of waiting to get signals that the vaccine you know, is safe and looks immunogenic, we're gonna be doing those things in parallel as soon as we possibly can so that when we get the data that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective, we can roll out with tens or even hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines very rapidly. Welcome to our podcast about biotechnology breakthroughs, the DNA of all living things, and the DNA of scientists, companies, and patients who make miracles happen. I'm Jim Greenwood, and you're listening to I Am Bio. When it comes to developing COVID-19 vaccines, do we want speed or do we want safety? It's a trick question, really. We can and must have both to protect our loved ones and to restore world economies in short order. Organizations like the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, and Operation Warp Speed are working at turbo speed to deliver vaccines next year to protect the world from the novel coronavirus. And the reason they can do so without compromising safety is because rigorous FDA testing is the area where nothing changes. What usually takes so long to get novel vaccines to market is how long it takes to get to the FDA, not how long it takes to get through the FDA. The second slowdown comes post-approval. Given how long it takes companies to scale up and manufacture hundreds of millions of doses. Well, CEPI has a solution when it comes to vaccine velocity to end the pandemic. As these candidates go through rigorous human clinical testing on thousands of patients to ensure they're safe and that they work, CEPI isn't waiting to make major investments in vaccine manufacturing infrastructure. So when the approval does come, they will be able to instantly mass produce doses for those in the greatest need. For the expression, speed kills? Well, not so fast, except when it doesn't. When done right, sometimes speed can save millions of jobs and millions of lives. Every June, Bio hosts the world's largest biotechnology convention, attracting upwards of 17,000 people from some 70 countries. But this year, because of the pandemic, we've gone virtual. So from June 8th to 11, we're holding BioDigital 2020. If you register at bio.org, you can learn about the search for a COVID vaccine from leaders like Dr. Anthony Fauci and our podcast guest today, Richard Hatchett, CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI. CEPI was launched at Davos in 2017 by the government of Norway and India with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Wellcome Trust 
to develop vaccines for deadly infectious disease outbreaks. And has CEPI stepped up in a big way in the COVID crisis? They are raising $2 billion to fund the development of vaccines that can be ready in just 12 to 18 months. At least that's their ambitious goal. CEPI already has nine development candidates, four of which are in clinical development. We're delighted CEPI's leader could be with us to kick off BioDigital 2020 this morning. Well, welcome. Nice to have you with us. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, before we talk about CEPI's work on COVID, tell the listeners a little bit about your story. As I understand, you served in the White House of both George W. Bush and Barack Obama, and you helped lead the planning for our response to the avian flu, H1N1, MERS, Zika, and Ebola. But I understand it was the job that you had on 9-11 and its impact on you that really led you down this leadership path. So where were you and what were you doing on 9-11? Well, I lived in New York City, uh, which, which is key to the story. And that morning, uh, I showed up for work in, in an emergency room. I worked in the emergency room at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center uh, and arrived at about 8 a.m. And the fellow who had been on the night before was wrapping up the only patient in the emergency room. And actually, I guess it was a really slow morning. And at and it, about 8.48, he said, you know, you need to come outside. Something really strange has happened. I like the way you say about 8.48. It sounds to me like it sounds to me like eight forty eight is indelibly impressed in your memory. It, it it absolutely is. I mean, you could see the fire and the hole and the and you know, it, it it was clear that a plane had crashed. We didn't know what kind of plane. We didn't know anything, and and we were standing there stunned, and we realized that we needed to implement the emergency system. We had we had practiced our uh, emergency drill just a few weeks before, which was. I, I think the scenario was something like a, a, a steam valve, you know, blowing and, and having five or six burned patients. And um, we had to immediately, you know, implement our emergency plan, which was certainly not scaled for anything like the scenario that we were you know, being forced to contemplate. We're a backup center for New York Hospital. And the plan was for them to you know, download patients to us. We spent the entire day uh, preparing for patients who never showed up. And by late afternoon, it, it became clear that either you survived or you know you didn't make it out of the towers. You know, we were contemplating tens of thousands of people being injured. Um, and then the next day, I I uh, was off duty, and uh, there was a, a call for medical volunteers to to come to Chelsea Piers to help with the medical support effort, which was really medical support for search and rescue workers. And I, and I, I went over and it was completely chaotic. Uh, they had called for volunteers, but there was nobody there to receive them or sign them up or to organize them. And ultimately we self-organized uh, a group of about 15 or 20 of us and, and traveled down uh, in, a, in a truck going down the West Side Highway to Grand Zero. And to make a, a story that I've already it's already been a little bit long in the telling, but uh, ended up at the main, what became the main uh, medical triage facility at Ground Zero, providing medical support to search and rescue workers. And when we showed up, they were just operating in the lobby of Syvesson High School, 
with a few boxes of supplies. The fellow who was sort of overseeing what at the time was about an eight-bed little area, you know, asked who we were and what uh, skills we had. And I was one of only two emergency room physicians uh, who were in this group that we had self-assembled. And so this guy tapped the two of us on the shoulder and said, you're in charge. Within 12 hours, it went from being a little eight-bed space to being essentially a four-story field hospital that self-assembled with hundreds of volunteers, millions of dollars of medical supplies that showed up unasked for um, trucks bringing them down the West Side Highway. And we were providing medical support to all of the search and rescue workers uh, at Ground Zero, which was a transformative experience, completely changed my direction of my life. We came up with the idea of creating what we called at the time the Civilian Medical Reserve. And then we decided maybe the Civilian Medical Reserve, you know, just in case there were future bioterrorism events, should have a public health focus. And we began shipping it around. And by the time uh, our proposal found its way to Vice President Cheney, uh, the anthrax attacks had occurred. And we were invited to come down to talk to the vice president's office. And our proposal, which we thought we're thinking of is principally for New York City, became a national program called the Medical Reserve Corps. And I was asked to come to D.C. to help set that up. So uh, I can see how that brought you from New York to Washington. How did you actually become uh, part of a leadership within both uh, the two presidents' um, administrations? Well, you know, so so when I came, I, I joined an office uh, of, um, it was called the Office of Public Health Preparedness. Um, and, and I don't know the exact size of the office now, but I want to say it's probably 600 to 800 people working on emergency preparedness and response. But when I arrived, which was in um, probably, I think I started there in, in uh, late spring of 2002, you know, there were about 12 or 15 people there. And so I got in at the ground floor and I was doing policy and I was doing medical countermeasures development uh, work and developing response strategies and ultimately got involved in, in um, pandemic preparedness planning and, and, and thinking about how to respond to a smallpox attack, how to respond to com you know, communicable disease epidemics. Uh, and one thing led to another. And you, and you worked on a number of, of outbreaks. So if you think about, if you look back at H1N1, swine flu, you just mentioned, avian flu, MERS, Zika, Ebola, um, is there one which you say was, was the most challenging? I, th I think they were challenging, actually, each outbreak was challenging in its own way. The Ebola epidemic in 2014, 2015 presented a whole different set of challenges where, you know, we were having to project capabilities over to West Africa to help with the response to a much more lethal and scary pathogen. And, and of course, we had the, the incidents uh, in the United States that created a tremendous amount of concern in the U.S. And then Zika, although again, a disease with kind of a, a, a ultimately a limited public health impact, presented the challenge of a, a new virus that we didn't know very much about that was spreading rapidly, where we were learning in real time about the disease. Uh, you know, we knew a lot about Ebola. We knew a lot about flu. What we're seeing today combines all of those challenges into one really tremendous, almost overwhelming challenge in terms of responding to COVID-19. 
And so how did you go from uh, the work in the, with the administration in the White House to CEO of CEPI? After the pandemic of 2009, um, in the early spring of 2010, we briefed President Obama. I said that, you know, a lot of people said we had dodged a bullet. And I said, we didn't really dodge a bullet. Nature shot us with a BB gun. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, the vaccine that we developed, it was safe and effective and it arrived too late. CDC uh, later estimated that about, I think, 61 million people had become infected uh, with H1N1 and that the vaccine had prevented possibly a million cases. So it had a very limited impact on the on the epidemic. And in briefing the president about that, we, we recommended that the U.S. government make significant investments in improving its own capabilities to respond to future pandemic events and that it make investments in regulatory science, that it invest in developing the Centers for Innovation and Advanced Development and Manufacturing, um, that it invest in capabilities at NIH, just across the board, which which the government made and and which ultimately led to a much more effective and productive medical countermeasure system within the U.S. government, working obviously with private sector partners. Discussions that emerged after the Ebola epidemic um, about what had gone wrong, what could be done better, culminated in an ongoing discussion among global public health leaders about how the world could be better prepared for events like Ebola. And, And a decision ultimately was made to create an organization, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, that would have a role in the international response to epidemics. And lo and behold, uh, when they started looking for a CEO, they came and asked me if I would consider applying for the position. They recognized talent when they saw it. So good for them and good for you. So the E in CEPI stands for epidemic, but now we're in a global pandemic now. How is this change CEPI's outlook and and way of doing things in order to respond to this global COVID challenge now? You're very perceptive to cone in on that. The diseases that CEPI was working on before COVID-19 were epidemic diseases, diseases like Ebola that have the potential to cause major disruption, major economic impact, but for which it's very difficult to imagine actually becoming truly pandemic diseases in the sense of everywhere in the world facing the same threat at the same time. So the diseases that we work on pre-COVID were Ebola and Lassa fever and Nipah and MERS and chikungunya and Rift Valley fever. Obviously plenty of challenges, um, but it doesn't present the challenge of responding at speed, at scale. Um, in the way that that COVID-19 has. And we made the decision by around January 20th to actually invest in the development of and testing of new vaccines. And we were able to move, I I, I think, with extraordinary rapidity and announce our first vaccine development partnerships just three days later. Um, How, now at, at that time, obviously, you know, China had implemented the aggressive containment actions. It wasn't at all clear how infectious the disease was or how far it was going to spread or that we would be facing, you know, a, 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 a absolutely devastating global 
pandemic, but we recognized that that was one potential future. CEPI wasn't set up or resourced, frankly, to respond to pandemics. Uh, I think at the beginning of 2020, I think we had somewhere in the vicinity of 65 or 70 uh, employees in CEPI. You know, we've essentially just had to step up to the plate and, and up our game because this is the threat that we have. And we were the only organization that was configured to focus on vaccine development and responding to such a threat at a global level. So in the United States, we have Operation Warp Speed, which is being led by my friend Monsef Slaoui, who's uh, trying to deliver vaccines in what would be really record time. And CEPI's trying to go at warp speed too. They're funding projects that could produce a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. So what's the difference if there is one? Well, let me, let me start by talking about the similarities, which is a recognition that we need to move um, at speed to develop new vaccines in timeframes that um, are really astonishing in their ambition. And, and that to do that, we need to make multiple bets on different approaches to vaccine development. We need to focus on approaches to vaccine development that can provide scale very quickly. We need to be willing to take substantial financial risks in terms of scaling up the manufacturing process at the same time that we are performing the early clinical development. So in, instead of waiting to get signals that the vaccine you know, is safe and looks immunogenic, we're gonna be doing those things in parallel as soon as we possibly can so that when we get the data that shows that the vaccines are safe and effective, we can roll out with tens or even hundreds of millions of doses of vaccine very rapidly. So those are, those are the similarities. I would say that the critical difference, which is access, global access to vaccine. And Operation Warp Speed is focused on delivering vaccine for national needs in, in the United States and delivering vaccine for US citizens. Uh, CEPI is focused on delivering vaccine um, essentially for the world. Um, and we recognize that we're not the only game in town, that there are hundreds of vaccine developments underway, but we are specifically designing our, our programs to achieve speed, scale, and access at the same time, and, and to ensure that those vaccines are available, not just to high-income countries, but also to middle-income countries and low-income countries. That obviously is a gigantic challenge. The capacities that the U.S., is going to fund to develop COVID-19 vaccines at speed for the 330 million people in the U.S., that capacity is not going to go away once U.S. citizens are vaccinated, but hopefully will then become available to serve the needs of the rest of the world. And the investments that the U.S. government is making in the development and the, and the clinical testing of vaccines is, you know, represents resources that don't need to be duplicated externally. If you want to look at it from the pessimistic side, I think you say, well, we've never formulated successfully a vaccine against the coronavirus. We have diseases like HIV and herpes, for which people have been trying to develop vaccines for a very long time, decades, uh, without success. 
and that it normally takes even on a even when a vaccine program is successful, it can take ten years plus. Now we're talking about ten months. Uh, I would say if you look at the optimistic side, you would say, well, that's all true, but we've never seen a concerted global effort as we are now with, as you've said, uh, well over 100 um, uh, projects to develop vaccines. So why are you optimistic? Because you sound optimistic if you're talking about manufacturing already, that we're actually going to be able to develop a, uh, a safe and effective vaccine. A couple of reasons. We have studied coronaviruses uh, as potential vaccine candidates. I, I, I think it is um, shame on us in a certain respect that we haven't developed a template coronavirus vaccine. The, the, the two coronaviruses that, that have elicited SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, and MERS, the Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome. And, you know, efforts were undertaken after the SARS epidemic in 2003 uh, to develop vaccines. But the fact that the, the virus had been successfully contained and was no longer perceived as a current threat led to those efforts not proceeding and not receiving necessary funding to solve the problem. Essentially, the world just left the job undone. With MERS, we had actually prioritized MERS as one of the first three um, viruses that we were focusing on. And we had allocated somewhere in the range of $100 million to develop MERS vaccines, which I often was questioned about. Uh, because there have only been about 2,500 cases of MERS since it first emerged uh, seven or eight years ago. And I was asked, why are you investing so much money in a MERS vaccine? And my answer was always two parts. The first part was, well, nobody would have invested in an Ebola vaccine based on their 40 years of experience with Ebola prior to 2014. And nobody would question the value of having an Ebola vaccine now. So we don't know what the future for MERS is going to be. But the main part of my answer was, I think we need a template coronavirus vaccine. Um, because what we know about coronaviruses, some coronaviruses are as communicable as the common cold, and some coronaviruses have a lethality of 10% in the case of SARS to 30% in the case of MERS. What we haven't seen yet is a coronavirus that combines those two qualities. And I'm very concerned that we might see something like that in the future. The other reason I'm optimistic is that, you know, based on what we know about coronaviruses, there is a protein on the surface of the virus called the spike protein that does appear to elicit a, a, a strong immune response. And, you know, we need to prove and test that that can be a protective immune response. We have sort of, you know, good a priori reasons for thinking that we know what we need to target on the virus to produce an immune response. You know, one of the stories, this is within the field of vaccinology, this is, uh, you know, one of the great stories uh, uh, of vaccine development. Maurice Hilleman, uh, you know, formerly of Merck and, and one of the great vaccinologists, if not the greatest vaccinologist of all time, with his mumps vaccine, uh, which was based on a viral specimen that he obtained from his daughter when she developed mumps. They went from obtaining that specimen to delivering a licensed vaccine in four years, between 1963 and 1967. And up to the present day, that is the fastest development of a vaccine in history. So people say, 
you know, how can you possibly think that you're going to develop a vaccine in 12 to 18 months if that's the actual track record? And four years is the fastest we've ever done it. Well, when when Hilleman developed that vaccine, it was two years from obtaining the specimen to going into clinical trials. And it was less than two years from going into clinical trials to having a licensed vaccine. And that was in the 1960s. And, and we entered clinical trials nine weeks after the sequences were released in early March. And, and we have a global crisis driving the vaccine development. So do I think we can do better than the two years that Morris Hilleman did in the 1960s? Absolutely. Well, that's good to hear. You, you touched upon the manufacturing challenge, and it's going to be huge. Um, so let's go into that a little bit more. How in God's name are we going to be able to develop the manufacturing capacity to go as quickly as possible, scale up enough to, to literally make it available to billions of people? It is going to be a, a, a tremendous challenge. You know, the world's largest vaccine manufacturer in terms of number of vaccine doses produced is the Serum Institute of India, which produces about 1.5 billion doses of vaccine a year. And I think Sanofi is the second, and I think they produce about 1 billion doses a year. Number three is probably GSK, probably somewhere around 800 million doses a year. Uh, many of those vaccines are multivalent vaccines where, where you, you know, the, the mumps, measles, rubella. So they effectively combine, you know, three possibly individual vaccines into a single vaccine. So the actual amount of antigen produced, which is, you know, the thing that you're immunizing with is, is, is much, much larger than those doses would suggest. And, you know, with COVID-19, we just need one antigen and we need to produce a lot of doses of that vaccine very quickly. And fortunately, uh, we're using, uh, you know, some of the most recent technologies that have been developed and some of the most recent manufacturing technologies that have been developed. So we're not having to build new vaccine manufacturing plants from scratch in order to do this. And we've done global surveys for both the um, production of what's called drug substance, the raw material of the vaccine, and drug product, which is the filling and finishing of the vaccine into the final vial. I mean, they, there are some bottlenecks and there are some challenges, and I, I won't deny that at all. But we do see pathways potentially to having multiple billions of doses of vaccine in 2021. Now, that's not enough to vaccinate the world in 2021. We, we vaccine relative to global need, you know, will be the supply of vaccine will be the constraint. So that vaccine needs to be used, um, you know, in a in a very rational, careful way if we are to achieve the goal of ending the acute phase of the pandemic. And by the acute phase, I don't mean that COVID nineteen is going to go away, but it means that we are going to vaccinate healthcare workers and protect the healthcare system globally, and vaccinate, you know, the elderly, vaccinate those with high risk conditions, take the sting out of the pandemic, reducing the morbidity and mortality and stress on healthcare systems, we can convert COVID-19 from the current catastrophe into something that can be managed. So if we succeed at step one, developing a safe and effective vaccine or more, 
And we succeeded at step two, which is scaling up manufacturing so that we can make it in huge quantities. Let's talk about step three, which is how this these vaccines get <clears throat> distributed around the globe. And by that, I'm really thinking about questions of intellectual property and pricing uh, and so forth. So one would imagine, let's let's assume for a moment that a U.S. company develops and they cross the finish line where the FDA did, uh, approves of the vaccine. They're going to assign some price to it. I think without any doubt, they'll, they'll sell it at a, at a price that's make sure that no one it goes without it. Um, uh, insurers will cover it. The federal government will cover it for Medicare and Medicaid uh, patients, no doubt. But what about the rest of the world? I mean, it, that's a critically important question. And the intellectual property system that we have is what promotes innovation and allows us to have these uh, critically important tools and these new approaches to vaccine development. And it, and it is critically important, obviously, that that be preserved. You know, there has been a lot of discussion recently about patent pools. Those are voluntary patent pools where patents might be contributed to allow for expansion of manufacturing um, of, of the products that those patents cover. You know, I mentioned the mumps vaccine that Murray Silliman developed in 1967. That vaccine is still used more than 50 years later. So mm. the life, lifespan of vaccines as products, because of the, the difficulty of duplicating them, is is long and it's it's often usually measured in decades and so the impact once you have a successful vaccine you're changing the world for decades so it is critically important that that those intellectual property issues be addressed uh, we've talked with a lot of manufacturers about the pricing issue i think a lot of manufacturers uh, are accustomed to and see the value of um, differential pricing uh, for countries with different economic means. Um, another term that's often used is tiered pricing. So there's a price for um, high-income countries and there's a different price for um, low-income countries. And usually those vaccines are procured by Gavi and they're usually procured by UNICEF or, or some other mechanism. And we do see ways to potentially preserve uh, some of these mechanisms that have worked well. Well, we have a lot of listeners in the U.S. biotech community. So do you have a message for them? I do, actually. Uh, have you ever heard of the Peter Parker principle? So Peter Parker was Spider-Man. And uh, in, in the origin story, there, he says, you know, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. And I think the biotech community, particularly the biotech community, in the, in the U.S. has incredible resources. It has incredible talent um, that it can draw upon. And it has the tools and the capability to actually save the world. And in this instance, I, I think there can be no higher purpose than supporting the fight against COVID-19, whether that's in developing vaccines, developing therapeutics, or developing diagnostics. And I think the, the great gifts that the biotech community has should create a sense of obligation to come to the world in its moment of need. I'm very pleased to say that in all of my experiences to date, that's exactly what I'm seeing. I think it's clear that the, the U.S. biotech community has risen to that challenge. And they, they do that knowing that, um, that 90% of the projects in which they uh, engage will fail. 
it's uh, probably a higher percentage of that when it comes to developing this vaccine. So they're going to be de- they're going to be investing time and money and 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 uh, and moving resources from other uh, projects that were probably had a greater likelihoods of success. And I think they're doing it um, for the humanity of it because this is uh, this hasn't happened in a hundred years. It will probably happen more frequently, but I, I'm proud to be associated with the industry. And I also want to thank you, sir, not only the, the work you're doing here, but the way in which you um, you redirected your the course of your life uh, in service to a, a very large cause. Jim, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure. That's all for today. Don't forget to subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Or even better, if you learned something useful today, please share a link to the I Am Biopod with your family and friends. To learn more about the work of heroes in lab coats, please visit iambio.org. On our next episode, we're going to continue our exploration of One Health approaches to help solve pandemics like COVID-19. It's time to take a trip to the ocean and explore the buried medical treasures of marine biotech. We'll talk to a young physician who beat COVID himself and is now determined to apply lessons from the World Bank to nurture a new generation of underwater innovation with pandemic-solving potential. That's next on I Am Bio.